Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. In the Old Testament, in Psalm chapter 8, Psalm 8, David, the great King David, he raises a question that we perhaps don't consider often enough. He raises this question. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? That's Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man? Why would God be mindful, give mindful consideration and attention to man. Now, in in that psalm, David is reflecting on the grandeur and the glory and the majesty of the Lord. You may remember that Psalm 8 is the psalm that begins and ends with that refrain, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If God is majestic, if indeed his glory, uh, the psalm says, is not only put above the earth, but his glory reaches actually above the heavens, then why would God pay any attention to us? Or or think about it this way. Even if God did pay attention to us, wouldn't it follow that God would maybe pay attention just to sort of the great and powerful leaders? You know, if we think about the countries on the other side of the globe, who do we think of? Do we think of the down and outs whose names we don't know, or do we think of the presidents and the kings and maybe the famous celebrities or the rich people in that culture? We might give attention to them. They might break into our news cycles, but we don't know the names of all the millions and billions of people who are on the other side of the globe who are nameless and faceless to us. Maybe God would pay attention to the highest and the mightiest of us, right? But it's not even that. God pays attention, as Jesus talked about in the last passage and again in this passage, even to the little ones, even to the least of these. Why? What are we that God is mindful of us? Well, it's not about us. As we're trying to answer that question, as we're trying to think through, as we're trying to understand God's reasons for valuing human beings so highly, we can't only have the passage that we looked at last week, where Jesus insisted that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are like children, humble like children. To understand that, we need what Jesus says in this passage here today in verses 10 through 14. Jesus goes on and helps us to understand God's reasons, that the reasons have nothing to do with something that God needs in us, but it's entirely because of Him, because of His free grace, because of His mercy, because of His love. What Jesus is teaching us in verses 10 through 14 here in Matthew chapter 18 is that out of God's great love, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's our big idea for today, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. 
Now, I, I know that this isn't a typical traditional Christmas text. If you want one, please come back at 5 o'clock tonight. We'll be looking at the Christmas text, the birth of Jesus in Luke 2, 1 through 7. It'll be great. Uh, but even this passage is shedding light on the reason that Jesus Christ came into the world, the reason he had to be born, the reason Christ came, namely to seek and to save the lost. So we're going to talk about the gospel this morning. First of all, the hope of the gospel. That'll be the first verse that we looked at, the hope of the gospel. Second, the help of the gospel, the help of the gospel. And third, the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel. So let's start in the hope of the gospel in Matthew 18, verse 10. Now, I mentioned it just briefly, but, but let's do a little bit closer reminder of the context of what Jesus had been talking about. If you were here last week in the first few verses in chapter 18, there Jesus defined greatness as we might think of it. The disciples would ask, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, it's not the ones that you think will be the greatest. It's not the highest and the mightiest, the most powerful, the richest, however you might define greatness in the eyes of the world. Jesus said, the greatest will be those who humble themselves like a child. And so positively, Jesus applied that in chapter 18, verse 5, by saying that if you want to be great in the kingdom, to receive a child in my name is to receive me, Jesus says. And then negatively in the next verse, Jesus warned that anyone who would dare to cause a child to stumble, it would be better for that person to be taken out into the middle of the sea and have a millstone wrapped around his neck and drowned in the ocean. That's how seriously God takes this. That's how much valuation God puts on the least of these. Well, again, we have to answer the question of why, and Jesus goes on to try to answer that question in verse 10. And so he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, one commentator, Lenski, he's really good in Greek. He points out that this word for despise is, is, is literally the idea of thinking down on. We might say to look down on someone, to despise someone, to disregard someone, to fail to even notice someone, to count someone as nothing. So if in the last section Jesus said that the great are like this child or would receive this child in Jesus' name, now Jesus is telling us that therefore on that basis we must highly esteem children. What Jesus is talking about is gospel hope for the least of these. Now this is partially children, those who are thought very lowly because of their age perhaps, those of young age don't have a high status in society, in their society, or in ours. But it's for any of the least of these, those who are cast off, set aside, disregarded, overlooked, ignored. And why does Jesus say that we should not despise them, not look down on them in the kingdom of heaven? Well, because these are highly esteemed in heaven itself. In the next part of verse 10, in the second half of verse 10, Jesus continues saying, For I tell you, for always tells us the explanation. Let me give you the reasons for what I just said. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is one of the only verses that might get at something like we would popularly conceive of as guardian angels. There's some relationship between the angels in heaven and these children who are on earth. 
But it's unclear exactly what this relationship is. Is he talking about a guardian angel or not? Well, different commentators take different perspectives. One named Donald Hagner observes that it's not that these angels are spoken of as being sort of in the field, on the earth. You know, we think of a guardian angel sort of over the shoulder, kind of watching out everything that you're doing. But notice where these angels are that are spoken of here. They're actually in heaven. These angels never cease to see the face of Jesus' Father in heaven. So where are they? Well, again, it's a little unclear exactly what their role is or their relationship to these children. Uh, another commentator, D.A. Carson, points out that the word angel in the New Testament sometimes refers to the spirits of those who have died. If you remember the story in Acts chapter 12 when Peter was in prison and an, and an angel angel comes to him and breaks him out, jail, jail breaks him out of prison, And Peter then goes to the house of the church, the fledgling church who's interceding and praying for him all night. And he knocks on the door and the servant comes to the door, Rhoda. And then she's so excited to see Peter that she leaves him outside and goes to tell the people, Peter's outside. And what do they say? Oh, he must have died. You must only be hearing his angel. They use that word angel to refer to the dead spirit. So they thought of Peter. It was actually Peter but they called it Peter's angel at the time. And so Carson thinks maybe this is the spirit of dead children. They may not be thought of much on earth, but they are in the presence of God, ever seeing the face of God in heaven. Now, I don't, under, I don't know the right answer. Are these guardian angels? Are these angels who are interceding for children on earth? Are these the spirits of children who have gone to be with the Lord? We don't know. I don't want to try to answer that question here because the point that Jesus is making, if we zoom out at a very general, broad level, is very clear. That Jesus says that these little ones are highly esteemed in heaven. God the Father, God Almighty, gives such direct access as to see His face, as to never cease to see His face. When Moses asked to see the face of God, do you remember? God said, no man can see my face and live. But they're angels, the angels of these children, the angels somehow associated with these children in whatever way, are given unceasing direct access to see the face of the Father. What the world assigns to the lowest place of privilege and priority, God gives the highest place of privilege and priority and access. And the implication is that the Father looks upon these little ones with such high esteem and so also should we? Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's doing something like cluing us in to sort of the running joke or the, or the, the sort of irony in some of those um, undercover whatever shows, like the undercover boss show or an undercover celebrity show. Or uh, I've seen uh, videos of undercover professional athletes where a famous NFL quarterback goes and You know, they put on a bunch of makeup, and he goes to try to walk on to some college team. And the question is, how do the people treat this person before and after they realize that this person is someone of great notoriety in the world? Especially interesting are the undercover bosses' shows. You know, there might be the the CEO that maybe no one has ever actually seen, and he takes sort of an entry-level job, and the question is, how will this person's direct manager actually treat this individual? Sometimes the direct managers are very cruel, and it is a terrible reckoning when they find out that this is actually the boss boss, 
Some of them are dismissed, some of them are disciplined in some way, but they didn't know who they were dealing with. Others, however, treat these entry-level employees very kindly, and they realize this manager is actually a gem and is worthy of reward and promotion. Well, again, the question is, how would you have behaved if you knew who this person was? And the whole point of the exercise is, did you treat this person rightly even when you didn't, when you were entertaining angels unaware? Jesus is saying, if you want to be clued in to the right way to treat those who are counted as significant in heaven itself, treat the least of these. Treat the most insignificant children well. What Jesus is teaching his church to understand and to know is that children, the least of these, those who seem to have the least to offer, the least value, that God holds them in the highest esteem. Now, this is giving the foundation for our understanding of why God includes children in His covenant. In the Old Testament, God insisted that children should be circumcised because they held a place in the people of Israel. In the New Testament, God teaches, insists, commands that children be baptized in the New Testament. Now, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, declared that the promise of the gospel, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, but the promise is for you and for your children. Why? Just because of what Jesus is teaching here. Because those who have high esteem in the kingdom are the least of these, the children. And if they are given such high esteem in the kingdom, how could they be excluded from the covenant? How could they be kept away from the covenant sign? How could we withhold water for baptizing them? But what this task is all, or what this also is calling us to do is to the task of discipling our children in the church and in our homes. Now, last week I mentioned a resource that's out there in the parlor, free for the taking on serving the church. I hope you had a chance to peruse that. I want to refer you to a couple of other resources. Uh, one is by Brian Chapel uh, in our denomination, the stated clerk of our denomination, Why Do We Baptize Infants? If you wonder why we baptize infants, this is one of the best introductions to that. I know not everyone agrees with that. This is one of the best things to read on that. It tells you the place and the priority that children have in the covenant of, G of God that Jesus teaches very clearly is the case here. The second book is How Should We View Our Children in the Church by Joel Beakey. This is an excellent resource in teaching how we should teach our children, raise our children, train our children to never remember a day where they didn't know Jesus. Again, this is in, uh, right out there in the parlor. Any of those resources out there are free for the taking. We just ask that whatever you take, you read. Take it, benefit from it, whatever you're reading. And, and again, in terms of children in particular, it's so important that what Jesus is teaching is that if we are really recognizing their value, we need to pro be proactive in discipling them. As Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. But the other side of that is we want to be proactive in building up our children. The next thing that Jesus talks about is being proactive when the children who are in our homes who grow up as covenant children, children of the promises, then stray away. Proactive to chase after them, to call them back into the fold. And this brings us to the second section, the help of the gospel. The help of the gospel in verses 12 through 13 where we see the length that God, the lengths that God is willing to go to in order to help lost sinners. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. He goes on and says, What do you think? 
Now, Jesus isn't asking for their opinions. Well, let's all just pool our ignorance. That's not what he's saying. When Jesus says, what do you think, he wants them to reflect on this because what he is about to say, he recognizes as being very uncontroversial. He's saying, we all understand how this thing works over here. We'll look at that in just a moment. Therefore, I want you to think about this fact. So what is Jesus talking about? He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Now, in Greek, just like English, there are different ways of phrasing these questions, these rhetorical questions. Sometimes you can phrase them where you expect a negative answer. He wouldn't do that, would he? You're expecting someone to say, oh, no, absolutely not. But there are other ways to phrase the question to say, certainly he would do this, wouldn't he? And you're expecting an absolutely he would. And that's the answer that Jesus is expecting in the way that's phrased here. He would leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray, wouldn't he? Absolutely he would. And then in verse 13, Jesus goes on and says, If he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Now, what's Jesus clicking into here? Well, he's talking about wealth. The illustration, the parable that Jesus is giving is about wealth. In those days, your wealth was not measured according to your bank account and your investment portfolios and your assets. In those days, your wealth was largely measured by how many livestock you had. A man who owned 100 sheep was a wealthy man indeed. Now, I want you to do an exercise with me. Take a moment and I want you to think about your net wealth right now. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to have you write it down. I'm not going to have you share it amongst yourselves. Just get it in your head, okay? Think about your net wealth. Think about your bank accounts, your assets, your investments. Get as close as you can. Now, I want you to think of 1% of that. If you're bad at math, you just have to move the decimal back two places. I'm, I'm bad at math. So think about 1% of your net wealth. you have that number in your mind? Well, in a couple of months, we're going to be doing taxes, right? It's almost tax season. Imagine that you come across a new rule that you think threatens 1% of your wealth. Whether you have a large amount of wealth or whether you have a small amount of wealth, 1% is a really big deal. But you come across this rule in doing your taxes and you realize, I'm actually not sure if I'm required to pay this or not. Do you shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, it's only 1% of my wealth. No, you'd get on the phone. You'd call your accountant. You'd try to get advice. You'd get on the phone with the IRS if you had to. You'd do whatever it took to try to reclaim that 1% of your wealth back because it makes a big difference. Again, whether you have a large amount of wealth or whether you have a little amount of wealth. And when you get that refunded, don't you rejoice? Now, it's not because you didn't care about the other 99% of your wealth. It's just that wasn't threatened at the time. To get that 1% of your wealth back is a big deal. And Jesus is saying, if this is true about animals, how much more true is this about the wealth that God prizes most highly? His people, the little ones, those whom he considers to be great. What Jesus is doing here is he's asking about your heart, your love, your affections. He's saying, do you care? 
do you love the least of these as much as you love that 1% of your wealth if it were threatened? Would you go to such a great degree of length to chase a wandering little one back into the fold of Jesus Christ as you would to reclaim the 1% that you may or may not have to pay on your taxes? Jesus is asking, where is your heart? Where are your affections? Now, here's the thing about desires, affections, loves. We can't create them directly. If I said, I need you to go and just do something for a child, you could, okay, go and do it, check off the box, done, great. I've done all that's required, right? But you notice that's not really what Jesus is getting at. He's getting at our hearts. And there's no way I can just command you, love the little ones as God does, and you say, okay, I'm going to do that. And then your heart is just changed. It, what grows six sizes overnight, whatever, you know, uh, the Grinch did, that's not going to happen in your hearts just by a command in that way. So how do we change our hearts? Well, the Bible says that the way we change our hearts is by the renewal of our minds. That the only way for us to love something different is for us to reflect in our minds on what is true. Now, you will love the wrong thing if you, in your mind, reflect on what is not true. But it is also true that you will learn to love something if you reflect on what is true. That's the only way to change the what you love in your heart. And so what does Jesus want us to reflect upon? What truth does he want us to lay hold of? To be rattling around in our minds, burdening us, weighing down on us so that we are reflecting constantly, so that it works its way down into our hearts and changes the very things that we love? Well, this is where Jesus fills in the gap. What makes God mindful of man? It's not us. It's not something lovable or beautiful in us. It's the heart of God. Now we come in this third section to the heart of the gospel where we are called to meditate on the heart of God in loving sinners like you and like me. Look at the heart of the gospel in verse 14, the third section. Jesus says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus is saying that He came into the world because it was not the will of his father that even one of these little ones should perish. Now, I mentioned this last week, but it bears repeating as we continue our study through Matthew chapter 18. In, in Matthew 16 and 17, so the two chapters that precede, Jesus began to teach his disciples that he must suffer, that he must be crucified, that he must die, and on the third day be raised again from the dead. Now, they didn't like that message. They recoiled against that message. They were confused by that message, but Jesus taught about the necessity of his sufferings. Well, in Matthew chapter 18, it's like Jesus at one level gives them a break from the difficulty of that hard word because he never mentions the cross in this chapter directly. But if we look at what, what Jesus is doing at every turn in Matthew chapter 18, is he is teaching us more and more about the reasons why he must suffer on the cross, why he must die, and why he must rise again from the dead. And what he is doing here especially is saying that the reason that Jesus must suffer and die is because it is not the will of his Father who is in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. Now, the Scriptures teach that God 
predestined, that He chooses, that He elects those whom He will set His love upon, those for whom He sent His Son into the world to die for, those whom He will send His Spirit to lift their hearts into heaven, responding by faith to the gospel of Jesus. The Scriptures teach in the high mystery of predestination. But as much as we recognize that that is true and we want to have the whole Bible in view, that doctrine can never let us forget the fact that God so loved the world that He sent Jesus into the world. That Jesus came as a manifestation of the love of God. The Scriptures declare that God does not desire that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance in 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Scriptures declare that God does not take pleasure in the death because of condemnation of any in Ezekiel 18 verse 32. And here we're seeing something that's saying kind of the same thing. That it is not the will, it is not the desire, it is not the pleasure. God does not like when any are condemned on the basis of their unbelief. God's not wanting that. But what God did then was to send His Son Jesus into the world to save the least of these, the little ones, that they would not perish. That is, all those whom He had chosen to bring to faith in Jesus Christ. There's a balance here. We have to have the whole Bible in view. But what this does is it holds up in front of us the love of God for sinners. Do you believe that God loves sinners. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But before we get to that, we have to see that if we do know and love Jesus Christ, as many of us in here profess to do, at a practical level, this is teaching us about our responsibilities toward the little ones, that we must pursue those whom the world sees as insignificant with whatever it takes to bring them back. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, and He did this uniquely in some respects. We cannot repeat or replace what Jesus did in going to the cross for us. But the heart of the gospel manifested in the love of God shown forth in Jesus Christ crucified should shape our desires and our actions to follow Him by chasing down, by pursuing sinners for salvation. So our application from this text then is this. Let God's heart to save sinners weigh on you this Christmas. Let God's great love, His heavy compassion for His people to save sinners from death and condemnation, let that weigh on you this Christmas. Some of you are here this morning who have never known that God loves you. The Bible declares that God loves the world that God loves the world. And some of you have never known that God loves you. And when I say that God loves you, I mean something more than just a vague sense of warm, happy feelings just sort of shifted over generally toward you as though God from heaven just sort of sent down an aid package every once in a while in our direction. I'm talking about the love of God as the committed, desirous, deliberate choice to pursue you through His Son, Jesus Christ, when you were lost, when you were a wandering sheep on a mountain who had left the fold of God and faced only doom and destruction and despair. 
Do you know that God was not willing for you to perish, but that he sent his only son for you? Do you know that while the world may count you as insignificant, in fact, you were highly esteemed in the throne room of heaven? Do you know that Jesus died for you, not as a rote, mechanical, begrudging duty if I have to, but that Jesus died for you out of the overflow of a heart committed to saving beloved sinners. What Jesus is saying here, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish, is calling you to know Jesus Christ by faith. And if you don't know Christ in a saving way, let this truth, the truth of God's affectionate love for you, weigh on you. May it burden you. Do you understand that for all those who turn from their sins and look to Jesus Christ, this promise is for you? That no one who looks to Jesus in faith will be turned away from our loving Father in heaven. Let this then embolden you, encourage you, strengthen you. Let it lead you to faith in Jesus Christ this Christmas. We are not celebrating only the birth of Jesus because that would not be sufficient in itself. As much of a humiliation to step down from the glories that the Son of God experienced in the form of God from all eternity past to then take upon a human nature and to enter the womb of Mary being incarnated and conceived by the Holy Spirit and then one day born as much as of a humiliation from His glory as that was, it was not enough. Jesus had to do all things to fulfill righteousness all the way in leading to death on a cross for you because He loves you. But this love of God should also change our hearts for the salvation of other sinners. This Christmas, I expect that you will be with family members and friends who do not know Christ. And as you think about conversations that you may have at Christmas dinner or in passing as people talk about Christmas, Merry Christmas, that kind of a thing, as you think about wanting to share your faith, if you already know Jesus, I understand how that might be an awkward, anxious kind of a thing. What do I say? How do I not mess this up? Let me just simplify this on the basis of the passage we're looking at today. Would it change your ability to share the love of God if that's all you focused on? The simplicity of what you focused on? Do you understand that God loves you? Do you understand that God so loved the world that he was not willing for those whom the world counts as insignificant to perish? Do you know that God loved you so that 2,000 years ago he sent his only son into the world to seek and to save the lost? Do you know that God sent his son not just to sort of do a tour where he walked around and dropped his wisdom and then just sort of floated back up into heaven, that Jesus had to die for sinners so that you could be saved by believing in Jesus for salvation? Evangelism, sharing the gospel, is not a, a duty that we have to begrudgingly discharge. It should flow from a love, of, a wonder of God's love for us and for other sinners whom God counts as significant, as worthy, even those who have not yet come to believe yet. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God sent Jesus for you? Well, as you consider these conversations, I want to encourage you. 
reflect here. Let your mind wander over to ponder, to pick at, to go over and over and over again. The love of God that's reflected here in this passage. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And as you reflect upon the love of God revealed in this verse here, and revealed more fully throughout the story of the entire Bible, pray that God's Spirit would change your heart. If to believe in Him for the first time, or if to prompt you to share that love with someone else who needs to hear the good news of Jesus' salvation for sinners. Let's pray for just that right now. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would lead us to know and love Jesus. I pray that if there is any here who does not yet know Jesus, that this morning your love would weigh heavily on their hearts, that they would be pricked in their consciences and warmed in their souls, knowing that you, Father, were not willing for them to perish, but that you sent Jesus for their salvation. Father, all the mysteries of the way that you work, of the way and when you send your Spirit who moves like the wind. We know not where he comes from or where he goes. All of those are your mysteries. We simply pray that you would save sinners here today. That the same truth that many of us have embraced in Christ would extend to more and more people. And for those who feel themselves insignificant in the light of the world, that you would encourage us, fill us up, strengthen us, build us upon the safe, secure, rock-solid foundation of the love of God revealed for us in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We pray all this in Jesus' name.